Hello, folks. Welcome to the 34th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and oftentimes confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Now, before I tell you what myth we are going to be telling and talking about today, I want to address something concerning the last couple of episodes. So, I have been somewhat conflicted about how to feel about covering spirituality. I have found that these episodes are unduly long and very difficult for me to edit, and I think that I restate myself a lot in them. This is the kind of content that I am really uninterested in putting out. I am, for all intents and purposes, discontinuing that uh, podcast style. We are going to be only really looking at myths and stories and folktales from here on out. Now, that's not to say that there will not be long episodes sometimes. For instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh and Beowulf and other epics are still very much on the table. What is off the table are things like Bhagavad Gita, the Analects, texts that are concerned with spirituality as a process, as a system. Because these texts don't tell stories, or if they do, they are extremely minor to the actual text's meaning. Ultimately, I'm not interested in analyzing those things, not because I think they are unimportant, but rather because I think that it is uninteresting to listen to. And even though I have such a small audience, I've noticed that there are more people listening to these very long episodes, or at least a very small portion of these long episodes, than the smaller episodes that I find more interesting myself. Now, that's good and bad. Clearly, people are interested in longer-formed content, which is great. I mean, it's nice to know that people are interested in listening for a long while, but I am concerned and I'll use the last few episodes as an example. The Fly, which was an episode I put out a few weeks ago now and was on a Vietnamese folktale, got a few listens, right? And that was really sad to me because I thought that was one of my best episodes that I'd ever made. And The Analects, which I think is one of the worst episodes I've ever made, I didn't research enough beforehand and it kind of repeats itself over and over again, got three times the views or the listens. I'm just concerned that these smaller myths are going to fall by the wayside no matter what I do. And I think that spirituality as a system draws people in a lot more easily uh, because it's recognizable. It's like, oh, I've heard of Bhagavad Gita. I've heard of the Analects, but you haven't heard of the fly. I'm interested in people learning about the fly and myths like it, small myths that have gone forgotten by our society. So hopefully that clears up some of my intentions for this podcast in general. 
So today, we'll be looking at a myth from the Modoc people that is quite short called When Grizzlies Walked Upright. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. be giving the history of the Modoc people today because their history has already been told on this podcast. If you go back to the episode Coyote and Salmon, which comes to us from the Klamath people, you'll find that their history is told coincidentally with the Modoc. I did this because uh, they have very similar histories, although slightly different, that are quite linked. So even though I have not told a story directly from the Modoc yet, I have their history already in my podcast, and so I will not be telling it again. If you are interested in that history, then please go check that out. Uh, the long story short is that the Modoc were a slightly smaller group than the Klamath who were a little bit more rebellious. They did not want to just go along with what the Americans uh, wanted in their region which was Oregon, if you didn't know. And so the Modoc traveled south with their leader, Chief Kitpuash, and attempted to retake their homeland, which was uh, right by the lava beds rock formation uh, in Northern California. What then transpired was the largest military action ever conducted against a Native American tribe in American history. So you can see that that backfired on them pretty heavily by no fault of their own. Chief Kitpuash and his advisors were executed while uh, many Modoc were forced to go to the Oklahoma reservation, while others returned to the Klamath reservation, or some had already just stayed there. So that's the long story short. I have their history in much greater detail in the episode Coyote and Salmon. However, we do need to talk about the specific way in which this myth, when grizzlies walked upright, appeared. Unlike some of the other myths I've told on here, this myth does not come to us directly from the Modoc people. Instead, it was reported upon by a writer named Ella Clark in 1953. Clark was not a trained anthropologist. Nonetheless, she sought out many Native American storytellers and recorded their tales. In fact, this is what she is generally remembered for in history. However, Ella Clark heavily edited most of the stories she received from Native American tribes members. Thus, most of her work has been cast into doubt in the modern day. This Modoc story has been regularly retold and seems to be quite similar to its modern incarnation from the Modoc. This may mean that the modern myth has assimilated themes from the written version that Clark published, or that Ella Clark's version did not differ significantly from the telling of the myth. 
The timing of when this tale was recorded indicates that the Modoc storyteller responsible was either living on the Klamath Reservation or the more generalized Oklahoma Reservation. So, without further ado, let's tell when grizzlies walked upright. When Grizzlies Walked Upright Before there were people on the earth, the chief of the sky spirits grew tired of his home in the above world, because the air was always brittle with an icy cold. So he carved a hole in the sky with a stone and pushed all the snow and ice down below until he made a great mound that reached from the earth almost to the sky. Today it is known as Mount Shasta. Then the sky spirit took his walking stick, stepped from a cloud to the peak, and walked down the mountain. When he was about halfway to the valley below, he began to put his finger to the ground here and there, here and there. Wherever his finger touched, a tree grew. The snow melted in his footsteps, and the water ran down in rivers. The sky spirit broke off the small end of his giant stick and threw the pieces into the rivers. The longer pieces turned into beaver and otter. The smaller pieces became fish. When the leaves dropped from the trees, he picked them up, blew upon them, and so made the birds. Then he took the big end of his giant stick and made all the animals that walked on the earth, the biggest of which were the grizzly bears. Now, when they were first made, the bears were covered with hair and had sharp claws, just as they do today, but they walked on two feet and could talk like people. They looked so fierce that the sky spirit sent them away from him to live in the forest at the base of the mountain. Pleased with what he'd done, the chief of the sky spirits decided to bring his family down and live on the earth himself. The mountains of snow and ice became their lodge. He made a big fire in the center of the mountain and a hole in the top so that the smoke and sparks could fly out. When he put a big log on the fire, sparks would fly up and the earth would tremble. Late one spring, while the sky spirit and his family were sitting round the fire, the wind spirit sent a great storm that shook the top of the mountain. It blew and blew and blew and roared and roared. Smoke blown back into the lodge hurt their eyes, and finally the sky spirit said to his youngest daughter, Climb up to the smoke hole and ask the wind spirit to blow more gently. Tell him I'm afraid he will blow the mountain over. 
as his daughter started up, her father said, But be careful not to stick your head out the top. If you do, the wind may catch you by the hair and blow you away. The girl hurried to the top of the mountain and stayed well inside the smoke hole as she spoke to the wind spirit. As she was about to climb back down, she remembered that her father had once said you could see the ocean from the top of their lodge. His daughter wondered what the ocean looked like, and her curiosity got the better of her. She poked her head out of the hole and turned toward the west, but before she could see anything, the wind spirit caught her long hair, pulled her out of the mountain, and blew her down over the snow and ice. She landed among the scrubby fir trees at the end of the timber and snow line, her long red hair trailing over the snow. There, a grizzly bear found the little girl when he was out hunting food for his family. He carried her home with him, and his wife brought her up with their family of cubs. The little red-haired girl and the cubs ate together, played together, and grew up together. When she became a young woman, she and the eldest son of the grizzly bears were married. In the years that followed, they had many children, who were not as hairy as the grizzlies, yet did not look exactly like their spirit mother either. All the grizzly bears throughout the forests were so proud of these new creatures that they made a lodge for the red-haired mother and her children. They placed the lodge near Mount Shasta. It is called Little Mount Shasta today. After many years had passed, the mother grizzly bear knew that she would soon die, fearing that she should ask the chief of the sky spirits to forgive her for keeping his daughter. She gathered all the grizzlies at the lodge they had built. Then she sent her oldest grandson in a cloud to the top of Mount Shasta to tell the spirit chief where he could find his long-lost daughter. When the father got this news, he was so glad that he came down the mountainside in giant strides, melting the snow and tearing up the land under his feet. Even today, his tracks can be seen in the rocky path on the south side of Mount Shasta. As he neared the lodge, he called out, Is this where my little daughter lives? He expected his child to look exactly as she had when he saw her last. When he found a grown woman instead and learned that the strange creatures she was taking care of were his grandchildren, he became very angry. A new race had been created that was not of his making. He frowned on the old grandmother so sternly that she promptly fell dead. Then he cursed all the grizzlies. Get down on your hands and knees. You have wronged me, and from this moment all of you will walk on four feet and never talk again. He drove his grandchildren out of the lodge, put his daughter over his shoulder, and climbed back up the mountain. Never again did he come to the forest. Some say that he put out the fire in the center of his lodge and took his daughter back up to the sky to live. 
Those strange creatures, his grandchildren, scattered and wandered over the earth. They were the first Indians, the ancestors of all the Indian tribes. That's why the Indians living around Mount Shasta would never kill a grizzly bear. Whenever a grizzly killed an Indian, his body was burned on the spot, and for many years all who passed that way cast a stone there until a giant pile of stones marked the place of his death. And that's the story. Wow, I always love stories that go quickly. It's such a relief after recording two episodes of the Analects, which can really go on for quite a while, and Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it takes me back to my roots, really. And this story is about origin. It's about roots. It's about explaining how the topology and geography of one's local landscape came to be. The descriptions of Mount Shasta clearly create a central point of origin and of life for the Modoc people. It is a volcano, of course. We know this in the modern day as well. You can see that they were etiologizing this idea via the concept of a lodge, a great big lodge that the sky spirit created that would spark occasionally and create, create great rumblings when the fire would be lit. What is strange, and perhaps was uh, historical at the time, I'm not exactly sure when the last time Mount Shasta uh, actually erupted, but at the end of the myth, the sky spirit leaves Mount Shasta, leaves the lodge to never have that same fire. Perhaps this was explaining why Mount Shasta hadn't been erupting recently. Uh, I, of course, am completely speculating on this point because I have no idea when the last eruption occurred or when this myth was actually told first. It might have become a tradition to always say this last part of the myth uh, with the entire myth, even when Mount Shasta was erupting and you said, well, the sky spirit is definitely there and maybe that was a little bit of humor that you could add at the end of the myth. Nonetheless, it describes how an eruption from a volcano can come and go, and you never really know if the sky spirit is there. There is some doubt and uncertainty surrounding the uh, whereabouts of the sky spirit at the end of this myth. Note also that the sky spirit walks down the mountain, leaving a great rocky side that probably has a bunch of divots, or very large divots, and rock falls and such. And perhaps it was a place that uh, the Modoc avoided because it was very dangerous. It was the pathway of the sky spirit, and that was how they talked about it. The beginning of this myth reads quite simply as an origin of all things on Earth, and even the end can be seen as an origin of humanity. So let's break down how exactly the world is made. The world is not made in some non-physical way, as many monotheistic cults posit today. This is still a monotheistic belief system. There is none other than the sky spirit. Perhaps you could see his daughter as also a deity, and I somewhat do as well. However, I think that it's important to note the individuality of the sky spirit in the beginning of the myth. Note that the sky spirit wields a giant stick, 
We could interpret this through a number of different lenses. The Freudian one comes to mind, although I am loath to use any Freudian analysis. The Modoc were likely patriarchal, considering they had chiefs that were typically male at the time of their first contact with uh, European settlers. So it could be assumed that because they had this patriarchal structure, they wanted to implement this in their myths as well. The idea that men created the world is a highly patriarchal one. The one woman in the myth is punished heavily for her supposed deception of going down to the earth and having children, of poking her head out just a little bit to see the ocean. And truly, I feel similarly. I think it's very natural and normal to want to see the world. And so I feel much more connected uh, character-wise to the daughter than the sky spirit. But nonetheless, the sky spirit represents that patriarchal push of, oh, well, men created everything, created all knowledge, all things. But we know this isn't true. In fact, the myth even describes how this isn't true. It's quite clear that the daughter is capable of creation. She creates a new race, according to the sky spirit. In so doing, she proves the sky spirit wrong, and that is why he kills her and uh, condemns all of the grizzlies to walk on all fours. I want to circle back to the idea that this is a very physical and human way of creating the earth. It is not through death that the earth is created. It is through a vague human problem. Oh, it is too cold in the sky, and so the sky spirit pushes the snow and ice down, and it all just clumps in a big pile. And that is the center of where life came from. It's so simple and yet so beautiful. And then the sky spirit just comes down and touches the earth and uh, breaks up small twigs and sticks from a tree and throws them into the rivers and taps their giant stick different places to make the animals. It is very human. These are all things that humans can do. It is enacting an internal agency within us that we are capable of great creation, of great things. And though it is associated with masculinity here and patriarchy, I want to push back on this idea slightly because it is non-dual. All of these actions are not inherently masculine. The big stick might be a metaphor for the phallus. However, we could just as easily take it as a stick. So let's take it as a stick and look at it that way. If we understand this sky spirit as all people, as the greatest of all people, then we can make sense of what the sky spirit would have us do, of create things. So what are we being told by this? I think that it shows us that creation is part of life and that all humans are very capable of creation, for we can all wield a stick and break up twigs and uh, walk down a mountain much harder to walk up a mountain than walk down a mountain. <laughs> and though we might not be able to create things at the same level as the sky spirit, to create beings and uh, change the world, the topography of the world, we can make things in our own lives, with our own sticks, with our own materials. That is what is being said here. 
Now the Grizzlies are an interesting idea that something could be made that is so frightful to the sky spirit that he would banish them, send them off. He would not want to see them, for he made them. I think it speaks to the artistic process. If you, like me, are an artist, musician, or, well, any kind of artist, really, then you surely have experienced creating something that makes you tremble, that makes you fearful of your own self for a moment. And this is what is being referenced here. The idea that we can create something so fearful to us, so indescribable, so non-human, so non-us, so uncomfortable for us to understand that we banish it. There are many pieces of art that I have locked away uh, figuratively. I still keep them, but I just don't want to show anybody because it is a fearful thing. What I'm referencing here is that overwhelming feeling of having made something that one shouldn't have, that it is too powerful to release, too potent, too indescribable. And maybe that's what art is for, to create those things. The wind spirit that appears about halfway through the myth and creates the uh, central conflict, which is that the sky spirit does not want uh, the wind coming in and blowing the smoke all about, is an interesting counterpoint to the monotheism seen up to that point. This is a spirit that is separate from the sky spirit, but nonetheless was probably made by the sky spirit. However, we must also question this because the wind is part of the sky, no? And so maybe it does speak to a polytheism within this monotheism, the one in the other. I find that a lot of Native American religion implements this non-dual nature of theism, that there will be a singular creator, but many, many deities who uh, do smaller things, and sometimes they're just called spirits and aren't really to the level of a deity, we could still pray to them, no? And so I fear that we do not understand this polytheism lying within a monotheism and monotheism lying in a polytheism. It is confounding to us because we like to think of things in binaries. That is how the world has typically been constructed in analysis. But the reality is that we must deconstruct this binary to fully understand religion as a system, as a structure. Even the most monotheistic religions are uninterested in only being monotheistic. The daughter growing old outside of the lodge but not within it is another typical trope of uh, deities and of especially the children of deities, that when in a proverbial heaven space, a space of gods, then they do not age, they are immortal. But when they come down to earth and meet the many peoples of the earth, in this case the grizzlies, then they begin to age. I believe that this is to show us that the gods are much closer to us than when we first think because we are, in almost every single religion, related to the gods in some way. Perhaps this is some arrogance and anthropocentrism, which means uh, human-centered. Nonetheless, I think it speaks to the fact that we conceptualized God, and thus we are close to that idea of God, because we conceptualized it. Now, this is a very meta 
take that is more based on my readings of spirituality than myth. But nonetheless, I think it applies here that when a deity enters the real physical world, not the world of the sky lodge, as it were, then they become like a human, similar in nature to us enough to have children with us. For in this case, the grizzlies are directly related to later humans. Now remember, this origin myth was probably not initially orally told in 1953. It was probably told for hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years beforehand. And thus, we can understand this as an origin of all peoples rather than what it says at the end, which is Indian peoples. That was probably a change either in the oral storytelling as more peoples were discovered by the indigenous peoples of America. But also, it could have been put in there by Ella Clark, who did not want to suggest that all of us come from grizzly bears. But I will take it there if Ella Clark will not, or if the teller of this story will not. We all come from the animal, and we are directly related to and rely on the animal. At the end of this myth, it is said that we should not kill grizzlies because they are like us. They are very similar to us, and I agree wholeheartedly. We are so similar to bears in a kind of freaky way. We're omnivorous. We hunt meat occasionally, but not all the time. We gather berries for the winter and gather food for the winter. So you see this connection. And I think that this connection to the animal world or just the world of nature is paramount in the modern day. We need to conceptualize ourselves as animals. There are too many people that see humans as separate from animals, but this is not the case. Biologically, we are just animals. Biologically, one of the only things that sets us apart is our specific surface area to volume ratio, physiology, anatomy, the simple structural things that make us slightly different from other mammals or other hominids, other apes. Well, there's no other hominids these days, but other apes. We are animals and it is refreshing to see a myth say that and reference that and make sense of the world in that way because so many religions disregard the animal and see the animal as an automaton, as something that barely functions, barely has sentience, if at all. And that's just horrible to me. When you see a bird stare back at you, when you have been standing for a long time and you make a noise in the woods, my, you can see the humanity in that bird. And I don't mean that it is literally a human, I mean that we can understand animals just like us are beings, and we can find commonality there, that all of us are making sense of the world in our own particular way, with our own particular perceptions, our own particular sensory abilities. A bird, such as an owl, will make sense of the world very differently than a mantis shrimp, or humans, or grizzly bears. The final point I will make about this myth is that, ultimately, it is, again, femininity that is demonized at the end. So we're going to circle back to the patriarchal system. 
because it is the mother grizzly bear that fears how the daughter will be understood by the sky spirit. And so she sends her eldest grandson to go in her stead. However, I also want to note here that the daughter is completely unaware of this, that her actions are in any way bad. And I wouldn't say that they are bad at all, for it is through her actions that human beings come to be. You see, what the Sky Spirit fears most are people that can rival him. And that is perhaps why he condemns the grizzly bears, seeing that they are becoming like him. He is a jealous god in this myth. Now that might not reflect his characterization in other Modoc myths, but nonetheless, I think it's interesting here that he refuses all of his children. He says, you are no less than grizzly bears. He says, you shall no longer walk upright, but on four legs, so that you will always be bowing to me, ultimately. What a horrible thing to force people onto their four legs. His condemnation is not enough. And the grizzly bears that were most similar to him sought to walk upright again. It proves that humanity can rail in the face of God no matter what that God may say. And ultimately, that is how I feel as well, that we must look into the face of whatever God we believe in, whatever concept we believe in, even if that is just the world or the universe, and say, I am here, I am important, and I will do as I do. Now, of course, if there are material things in your way from doing what you want to do, then you have other things to pray for and other things to say to the universe. You must plead with the universe in those moments, but when you are of full belly and have a happy home, then it is at that moment that you can stand up, look whatever you believe in in the eye, and say, I am just as powerful as you. Let me create. Let me create what I may. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, engaging in discussion within the comments, and sharing this podcast across the internet. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's E-C-H-O-C-A-I-N dot com. Next episode, we'll be telling the myth, Maui Traps the Sun from Hawaii. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Stand. Thank you.
Thank you.